Well, I don't think anyone could say that the Bible is boring, could they? When, if they've read stories like the ones we've had read this morning. There was Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal, and then this Roman centurion coming with such faith, asking for his servant to be healed. He didn't expect Jesus to go there. He wasn't expecting Jesus to lay his hands on him, just to utter the word. So let's take a look at these amazing stories. The first one that we read about in in the book of Kings. This confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And they they demonstrate the power of Israel's God over and against the weakness and the unreality of the God Baal. After King Ahab had married Jezebel, these prophets were said to eat at her table meaning that they were on the government payroll. And that's never a good thing, is it? Now, Mount Carmel, so I read, is not a single mountain, but a range. And there is some evidence that this range of hills was the traditional place for the worship of Baal, in which case Elijah was giving the prophets of Baal an advantage of fighting on home ground. It sounds like the people were trying to worship both Baal and God. They were hedging their bets, wanting the best of both worlds, securing the maximum advantage that they could from both. Baal was a a weather god, a god of the valleys, a god of the harvest. Whereas Yahweh was a god of the hills, the god of Sinai, not the valleys. So you can see how they wanted the best of both. But Elijah wanted the people to make a decision. In verse 26, the verb used for people wavering between two gods, describing the dancing of Baal's prophets, can mean to limp. Now I read that. You'll guess that. I don't know Greek. But the verb used there can also mean to limp. The point of this double meaning is that Elijah is telling the people that their attempt to having the best of both worlds was actually crippling them. Now Ahab had brought 450 of these prophets. Wow, it must have been busy and noisy, mustn't it? Here they were crying out for hours on end. And then they were cutting themselves and dancing. I think they worked themselves up into a right frenzy. And we know that absolutely nothing happened. No fire came on the sacrifice. Nothing. Next, it was Elijah's time. Well, it was God's time really, wasn't it? Elijah prepared his own sacrifice. He started again from scratch. So there would be absolutely no doubt about anything. Seemingly it was not unknown for miracles to be staged in heathen temples. So Elijah used another bull and built up the altar and the sacrifice again. And then he just asked God to send the fire. No dancing, no frenzy, just a quiet request and the answer was dramatic and complete 
God did what Baal had failed to do. Elijah had challenged the people to take a stand, to follow whoever was the true God, and here was the proof indeed. I wonder why they might have been wavering. Some people today waver, don't they? Hedge their bets a little bit. Maybe some of them were just plain not sure. Maybe some enjoyed the the pleasures and the other benefits that came through following Baal. We just don't know. But when they saw the fire burn up everything, the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, even the water, they fell down before the Lord saying that he is indeed God. And then we read about this Roman centurion who had a servant who was very sick. Now this man would have been in charge of about 80 men, not the 100 that we kind of imagine by the name centurion, but it was certainly a large number of men. He had authority over them and he would expect immediate obedience and response to his orders and commands. If there are any military people here this morning, they'll understand that better than the rest of us who don't live in such a a tight, clear authority structure. Now the heart of this story isn't really the healing of the servant. Well, yes, that's important because if that hadn't happened, there wouldn't be a story. But the faith of this centurion is the point that Luke is wanting to get over to us. This centurion would receive orders from his commanding officer who was probably in Caesarea about 50 miles away. And in turn, he would have soldiers under him responsible for performing and doing the commands and the tasks locally. Often the soldiers would despise the local people thinking they were an inferior race. But our centurion sounds a good man, a kind man, doesn't he? Because a slave servant would not normally be thought of someone worth nursing. He was expendable. A servant was easily replaced. And it's only with this centurion's backing that his value is acknowledged and his healing is procured. The slaves and the servants were regarded as the least important people in the household and they were generally not treated well. So this was a real act of compassion and advocacy on the centurion's part. This centurion had come to love and respect the Jewish people. He'd even paid for the building of a local synagogue. He does sound a nice man, doesn't he? It seems he knew something of Israel's God and presumably he liked what he saw. And Luke emphasizes his respect and his humility, sending two groups of messengers to Jesus. You see, the centurion didn't feel worthy to go to Jesus himself or to have Jesus come to his house. Presumably, he also knew that Jesus would be seen as unclean, a Jew to enter a Gentile's house. So through Jewish elders and friends, he asks Jesus to just speak the word and his slave would be healed. 
walked faith. Jesus is amazed. Now we're used to others being surprised and amazed by Jesus. Maybe this is one of the only places where Jesus is the one to be surprised and amazed. The amazement is in the faith of this man. It's not a willy-nilly abstract faith. It's just simple and clear. Clearly the belief that when this man Jesus speaks, when he commands that something will be done, it will be done. He regards Jesus in the same way as he would a military officer. But with more, he recognizes that Jesus also has the authority over sickness and health. If Jesus says that someone is to get well, he expects the person to be well. What could be simpler? Where he got his faith from, we don't know. We're not told. If he'd lived in Capernaum for a while, no doubt he'd heard about Jesus. He might have even seen some of the healing miracles. We just don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But he recognized the power of Jesus. Well, what has this to say to us today? That's what we want to know, isn't it? How does this help us live during this next week? Do we recognize and acknowledge the power and authority of Jesus in our lives? Is our faith as simple and sincere as was the centurion's? Or do we like those that Paul was talking about? And two, do we add a few man-made rules on? Or do we miss bits out? Paul was concerned that nothing got in the way of the simple truth of the gospel. That the only way to have eternal life, and that, just, that doesn't just mean eternal life once we've left this, this world. It means that wonderful life that we can have here and now. This life is through faith in Jesus and accepting what he's done for us. There's absolutely nothing else needed. If we add to that, then we are twisting the truth. And that's, that's much harder to spot, isn't it, than an outright lie. Someone just twists something. It's not so easy to, to ferret out. And that's what these people were doing. They were twisting the truth. Denying that Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient for salvation. In the very beginning, God created us in his image to be like Jesus. But we decided to go our own way. We thought we knew best. And God knew this was happen, happening. We didn't surprise him. Fortunately, he had a plan. The plan was to come in Jesus, to forgive us, to put us back together again, to make us whole again, to give us back the freedom, freedom that we've been singing about and we're going to sing about at the end of the service. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He forgave our sin, but he did more than that. 
he began the process of putting us back together again just the way he intended us to be in the beginning he wants us in a close relationship with himself calling him father daddy even that's how close he wants us coming to ask him for all that we need when we need forgiveness or healing or strength just everything that we need just like Elijah and the centurion did and then having been given all that we need to go on to be like Jesus to other people telling the good news and doing what Jesus was doing sometimes I think that's the bit that we miss out doing what Jesus was doing now that might sound a bit presumptuous it sounds a bit scary too I know but these are Jesus words in John's gospel in the 14th chapter verse 12 he says that if we believe this is what we will do he's given us his name to use and father has given us Holy Spirit and he's given us gifts in order that we can do these things he gives these gifts for everyone not just the person that he gives the gift to the gifts are for everyone Paul tells us doesn't he that we are to be like a body with many parts and how they're all needed and each one is needed in God's kingdom no gift is better no gift is more special than another one they are all needed for the good of all of us so some are given gifts of healing some the gift of prophecy and that can just mean encouraging someone with some words encouraging words it might mean a bible verse it might just be an impression of something something that we feel he gives spiritual gifts to us all have we got a gift that we've left unwrapped tucked away somewhere tucked away out of sight that we're not using so back to our questions is our faith true and simple do we recognize the power and authority of our amazing God we've sung this morning in that lovely song we have that power within us too we really have so do we recognize this power and authority Elijah did and his motives were good he wanted the people to see and know the one true God he demonstrated God's power by calling down fire on that sacrifice and the centurion wanted his, soul, his servant to be well and he knew just who to go to didn't he and Jesus demonstrated his power using the centurion's faith faith that his word would be enough and you know this must have made a huge impact in the centurion's household perhaps many came to know God because of this and we can also demonstrate God's power 
because we are co-heirs with Christ, having been given Holy Spirit. We need to stay very close. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Follow where he's working and leading us. And you know, all that the Lord asks of us is to have faith and to be willing, willing to be used in his kingdom, to use the gifts that he's given us, to let him be God and show his power and authority through us. We don't need to concern ourselves with being able. We just have to be willing. He will equip and enable us to tell and to show others by our words and by our actions of his amazing love for people everywhere and how precious everyone is to him and of his desire to have this close relationship with them, to heal them, to forgive them, to restore them to the people that he intended them to be right from the very beginning. If we do that, that way we will be bringing a little bit of heaven to earth. And isn't that what we pray for every time we say the Lord's Prayer? That his kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we forget just how simple your gospel is. We make it so complicated at times. But thank you that you are so patient with us. Working in us. Transforming our lives. Helping us to take you at your word. Give us a desire for the gifts that you have for us. And then to use them allowing you to work through us for the sake of your kingdom's growth. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.